Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alrighty. So, I am here in the podcast studio in my office here in Perth. And today is the last day that I have to actually edit my book, the new book, the leadership book, Commando Way. And I didn't really feel like editing any other podcasts this week, so I just thought what I would do is actually proofread one of the chapters. The first chapter, actually, after the forward and then the prologue. And then, you know, you can all listen into that. And that can be this week's podcast. I hope you don't mind. And of course, as always, this podcast is brought to you by Aussie Strength and the WHS experts as well. Alrighty, let's get into this. So this is chapter one. Give yourself no other option. The difference between imposed discipline and self-discipline is only the person imposing it. Graham Connolly, 2020. Very early in my long journey to become a Special Forces soldier, I learnt that if you want something bad enough, you have to commit to it fully. You must put all your eggs in one basket, especially if what you're trying to achieve is truly difficult, if it's against the odds or at the extremities of your capabilities. You can't give yourself any other option. Your focus must be only on your goal. Total commitment is essential. When I was in year 10 at school in South Australia, all I talked about was joining the army. Early on, I had dreams of being an officer. The chivalry, honour, sense of duty, these were all traits of my heroes of the day. I watched the TV show Tour of Duty religiously, and it was the clean-cut young lieutenant and the burly and wise platoon sergeant who sparked my interest in leadership. They espoused a type of yin and yang approach to managing men in combat. Years later in Afghanistan, I would have a very similar relationship with my own platoon sergeant, Paul Kale. On the weekends, I made out I was a platoon commander. I dressed in army greens and went to the bush to fight my friends with slingshots. In year 11 though, I wasn't getting the grades I would need if I was to become an officer. I was interested in study And I wasn't stupid, but I was falling behind and couldn't keep up with the smarter kids in the class. Especially three girls who seemed to be breezing their way through the study. I tried desperately to keep up with one in particular. She was really my first crush, and we dated on and off, but her smarts never washed off on me. Looking back now, I see that I wasn't managing my time efficiently, and I didn't know how to study for things that were most important. Purpose and interest were always my reasons for not doing well in certain subjects. I was shit-ass at maths because I couldn't see the purpose. If there's such a thing as dyslexia for numbers, I probably have it. It didn't help that my teacher had the personality of the board he wrote on. 
Yet I excelled at economics because the teacher explained it in terms I understood. Imagine this is your money. It didn't help either that I had an inferiority complex when it came to my father. This was no fault of his. Fathers often say things that affect their sons for years to come. After all, they're not really trained for the job, are they? Dad tried to get me to study harder by telling me I could never become a fireman like him with the grades that I was getting. This was a tough thing to hear given that, as well as Dad, my grandfather on my mum's side and my uncle were both fireys too. As well, I saw a career as an infantry officer in the army as an even harder thing to achieve. So all I heard was that I would never make it to the Royal Military College with my grades. I clearly remember the moment I realised that if I wanted to join the army, I would have to look at general enlistment. At the start of year 12, I was still only 16, too young to enlist. I dropped out a few weeks in and drifted around for the best part of 10 months, working on sheep stations and willing time to speed up. My 17th birthday felt like a lifetime away, but finally I was old enough to march into the Defence Force Recruiting Office in Adelaide. I applied, was accepted and then waited another three months for my enlistment date. There was a brief swearing-in ceremony at the Defence Force Recruiting Office. Then we were asked to meet at the train station. My family had come to see me off, and as the train began its journey to Melbourne on the 2nd of February 1991, I felt relief wash over me. I was leaving them behind. That should have made it clear to me that I wasn't happy at home. In fact, I was lonely, and now I was off on the adventure of a lifetime, with nothing but opportunity ahead of me, or so I thought. I had been sworn in as Recruit Connolly, making my oath to the Queen. The Corporal Career Advisor travelled with us to Melbourne on the overnight train. My only real memories of this trip were sitting there listening to my new mate, Travis, telling me about his time in the reserves, and him and the corporal sharing a few jokes. Jokes you'd only understand if you'd been there. Already I felt out of my depth. The next morning, I found myself on a coach arriving at Kapuka, the home of the soldier. When we pulled up, a couple of people jumped on and started yelling at us to get off and to move like we mean it. One thing that has not and will never change is the need for recruits to sense the shock of capture. It was a profound moment for us all. We were sorted into two lines and hustled down the road, being yelled at all the way to keep our fucking head up and our eyes to the front. A senior platoon marched by us. They were in parade uniforms, ironed to a crisp. They seemed to all be the same height, and they walked tall as they marched past, staring straight ahead. A sergeant walked at the back of the other crew, chanting, Eft, eight, eft, eight, eft, eight. These soldiers' arms and legs moved as one. Ours jostled each other, and we even sometimes tripped up the person next to us. They looked proud, whereas we looked like a beaten butcher's dog. We were assembled in front of the quartermaster's store. This is the primary building for the issuing and receipt of all the items a soldier needs to do their job. One by one we were ushered in and told we had to sign for a green canvas bag containing all manner of stuff. We were ordered to change into a green tracksuit and a pair of Dunlop KT26 runners. Well, they time weren't they the men out the front were receiving another lesson known as hurry up and wait in the army every soldier learns that you rush at the start of something and then wait around for ages for something to happen it's not an intentional lesson but patience is a valuable skill i can't help but think that it's one sadly missing from the kids of today 
Once we were all assembled with our green canvas bags, we were marched to the hairdresser. I sat and looked in the mirror. The young man looking back at me had a thick mop of shiny dark brown hair, parted in the middle in the style of the time. He was fresh-faced and innocent. I was asked how I'd like my hair cut, and I was starting to answer when the clippers went straight through the centre of my hair in a deep shave. I'm sure that joke never got old. Seven more solid blows of the shears and I was suddenly a skinny kid with a shaved head. I felt just like my identity had been stolen. Only many years later, I was the officer in charge of selection, did I understand the importance of prioritising your existential worth over your external projections. People use the way they present themselves to the world as an armour, and they hide behind it. I now know the psychological impact that the first head shave has on a young man who joins the army. It has broken more than a few. It broke me. I was suddenly terrified. This shit had just got very fucking real. With our hair removed, we are shown to our new rooms, where we had 30 minutes to unpack our gear and organise it exactly as shown on the laminated picture hanging on the back of the door. We rushed to get it done. The shock of capture had well and truly been achieved, <laughs> but there was so much more to come. 13 Platoon was to be my home for the next three months. Our motto was, unlucky for some. That certainly was true for some. A few guys dropped out along the way. But for me, the number 13 has always been a very lucky one. The next morning I was taught to shave, even though there was not a hair on my face to miss. The smell of lemon Gillette shaving cream still triggers a surge of emotion in me, and I find myself shaving at a rapid rate. The time to get in and out of the ablutions was measured to the second and enforced. We were kids playing soldiers, even then. I was shouted at from sunup to sundown, and sometimes in the middle of the night. Get out in the hallway. Get out of the hallway. Where's your cutlery? Do you call that clean? Your socks look sad, the corporal would scream, his mouth inches away from my ear, while throwing a pair of perfectly good socks out the second story window go down and get your socks and they better be fucking happy when they get back in this drawer the emotional well-being of my socks was a very serious issue indeed so i turned up the corners of the socks as much as possible to make them into a smiley mouth finally they sat in my drawer beaming back at the corporal do you think you're smarter than me he loved to roar at us That was one of my favourites, because deep down, I probably did think I was smarter than him. No corporal, I'd shout back, in unison with the other recruits. The second week and the third week weren't much easier than the first. There was more shouting, beds overturned, lockers empty on the floor, with a personal weapon thrown into the mix. My stress levels went through the roof. Meals, meals were rushed, jostling at one side of the mess hall, We would pile food high onto our plates while being yelled at to go faster. Fighting for space at a table, we huddled over our brown stewy slop, holding our cutlery as much for defence as to eat. Three mouthfuls in, we'd be shouted at, Get out on parade! Then it was a quick sprint with the others for the door, and we'd stand in line for inspection. If we were lucky, this would happen during dessert. I realised early on that I could steal food for later. Call it the Anzac spirit or maybe it was some Australian convict heritage shining through, which obviously wouldn't pertain to me because I'm from South Australia and we're not convicts, but anyway, it's another point. But I would shove bananas, apple, cake or bread into my pockets. My smuggling career was going swimmingly until the second week, 
When I was sprung during a snap inspection not long after we'd gone to bed, I'd forgotten a piece of chocolate cake that I'd wrapped in a napkin and dropped into the drawer of my bedside table. I stood rigid to attention by my bed, with my sheet over my left arm and my counterpane over my right. I'm sure there's plenty of people that remember that. Bombardier Dix looked at me and smiled. The first time I'd seen him do this. Unable to fault my locker presentation, he went over to my bedside table and opened the drawer. My eyes darted left. Oh, shit. I've forgotten about the cake. I was about to be the central figure in a scene reminiscent of the movie Full Metal Jacket when Private Pole is caught with a jelly donut in his footlocker. What on fucking earth is this then? Recruit Connolly, he asked, looking at me. At six foot three, he was an imposing figure. Cake? Bombardier, I wrecked my brain for an excuse. Cake? He screamed. Cake? Hallway 13, he yelled. Recruit Connolly likes chocolate cake, don't you, Recruit Connolly? Yes, Bombardier, very much, I yelled as the rest of the platoon ran from their rooms. So, Recruit Connolly's going to eat this cake, and all of you are going to do push-ups while he does. Each time you get to ten, he will take a bite. Do you all understand? Yes, Bombardier, the men yelled. They dropped to their hands and knees and started doing push-ups, yelling the cadence together. I took a bite at ten. Though I wasn't smart enough to shove the whole goddamn thing in my mouth, they got to ten more. And I took another bite and chewed. This isn't so bad, I thought. The guys will be fine. I just fucked up a little. They pumped out another ten, then another while I ate my cake. I think maybe they'd got to about a hundred or so by the time I took the final bite. I looked along the hallway at the murderous glances directed my way. I had just received an introduction to group punishments. The guys didn't talk to me for a few days, but over time, you know, they seemed to forget. So I thought. It was when we did physical training especially running, that I came into my own. Only a year ago, or prior to this, I'd finished second in an inter-school athletics carnival for the 800 metres and third in the 1500 metres, so I had an engine. As well as being able to hold thresholds for a long period, I could also sprint, which stood me in good stead. There was a set of steps carved into the hill behind the gym, and often for punishment, we would have to run up the hill and around the lone tree. I guess thinking back, it was about 400 metres all up and I was usually first or not far off the pace. Occasionally, our physical training instructor would yell after us, anyone who doesn't beat Recruit Connolly will have to go around again, and that would just make me run all the faster. I was hated for this, but I didn't know it. If I could go back in time and talk to young Recruit Connolly, I'd take him aside and tell him to stop being an arsehole, but no one had that quiet word with me, and I carried on oblivious. Over time, the distances were made to run in... Over the time, the distance we were made to run was increased from 400 to 600 to 800 metres up and down this grassy hill. I would shadow the other guys, wait for the last 200, and then in it would go, the kick. I was playing with them. Many guys in my platoon suffered and ran up that hill more times than they had to because I couldn't resist the competition of the other guys. I truly regret that behaviour now. The platoon staff were great, if I'm honest, and I look back on them with fondness. When the shouting finally stopped and they started to warm to us, because we recruits had learnt that self-discipline is easier than the alternatives, we started to click as a cohesive team. We did small field trips to learn the basics of army tactics, which I loved, and there was weapons training, which I didn't care for much back then if I'm honest, I just liked being out bush. Given the way I behaved at first when I was a recruit at Kapuka, it probably won't come as a surprise that I was bullied. I didn't realise it was bullying back then. I thought it was just that some guys in platoon didn't like me. That's the way the world was, I figured. You can't be friends with everyone. 
I had a smart mouth and would call people out if they deserved it. And one night, I called out the wrong guy. He and two of his mates decided to sneak into my room at night with bars of soap and socks and belt the shit out of me. I tried to fight back, of course, but realised I couldn't win, so I simply curled off my bed and took it. I cried myself to sleep that night, and I thought about quitting. At times, like that, I really hated the place. But I'd told so many people that I was joining the army, and I'd passed up lots of other opportunities to be here, so I couldn't just quit. I hated my home life too, and didn't want to go back there. I actually had no other option but to stay. I also decided that nothing was going to stop me from finishing Kapuka. Those three guys didn't come near me again. I've often wondered where they ended up. In the early years, I thought a lot about finding them and dealing with them on my own terms. Then, as I matured, I started to see it as a life lesson. I reasoned that, to a degree, I brought it on myself, and that I should have thought more carefully about how I interacted with them. I learned that not every interaction, physical or otherwise, needs to be combative. If I came across those you know, three guys now, I'd probably even buy them a beer for the lesson they gave me. As time went on, I came to love the experience of Kapuka, and I was very proud when I marched out of there. In the years that followed, it became a frame of reference for me. The key lesson I took was not to give myself an out. I wouldn't truly understand this until I failed the selection course for the Special Air Service Regiment. Only by then had I gained the introspection that allowed me to see what Kapuka had actually taught me. My uncle and my cousin came to watch me in our final march out parade, which was great. I never really expected Dad and Mum to come, as Kapuga is so far away from Adelaide. But now that I have my own sons, I don't really understand why Dad didn't come. He remained an enigma to me throughout my life, to the day he died, if I'm honest. In some ways, though, his emotional absence helped shape me, and I can only assume that it is also the reason I wasn't easily affected when I witnessed death during my deployments. I also know that I would have made a great firefighter too. Lessons. It's human nature to want to take the easy option when it presents itself. But to get what you want in life, you need to apply yourself and do the hard yards. So don't fear the tough option. Do put all your eggs in one basket if you really want something. Aim as high as you can imagine. The worst that can happen is you make it only some of the way. Strive for the things you dream of, even if they're things your peers can't or won't do. You don't need their permission. And finally, you don't have to win every race. In fact, sometimes it's better to let others win. Alright gang, that was chapter one, read to you by the author. It forms part of the first part of the book, The Commando Way, which is all about resilience. The second part is about leadership and the third part is about optimization. I hope you liked that. I'd love some feedback, so feel free to leave a review. Um, jump on Instagram today and leave a post if you like. It's also a bit of a shorter podcast than usual this week, and so we don't have the end of podcast club like we usually do where I have a code word and then send people T-shirts. But what we'll do this week is if you change your profile picture from your Instagram to the cover of my book, The Commando Way, and leave it there for a couple of days, then I'll pick a few of you and send you out not only a T-shirt, but I'll also send you out a copy of that book, signed, when it gets printed. Yeah, so again, change your Instagram photo, your personal photo, to the cover of my book, and I will send out a copy 
of the book signed and also a Warrior U t-shirt to a few of you, more than a few. All right, gang, have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.